Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Hey, today's episode is about Sasha Mending. I had the great pleasure to talk with Jessica Marquez, author of Make and Mend. If you're following along in real time, you'll have noticed that this episode was released a few days late. On the day I was scheduled to release this episode, Emmy Ito of Little Koto's Closet released an article about cultural appropriation. Emmy is a Japanese-American woman who has been working to educate privileged people on the harm that they do when they thoughtlessly use the work and culture of a minority people and in the process, usually erase the minority's role in it. I delayed the release of this episode to ensure that I had sufficient time to listen through it again and make sure that both Jessica and I did not unintentionally cause harm. In reviewing this, I think we were both respectful, knowledgeable about the history of Sashiko, Boro, and not appropriative. But if you disagree, I absolutely welcome your input. I never want to cause hurt unintentionally, and I'm open to correction. I've put a lot of resources for further reading into the show notes if you would like to educate yourself. I highly recommend that you do. So is it Sashiko? Is it Sashiko? We switch back and forth with pronunciation throughout the interview even. But there are many different pronunciations on the internet, some of which are absolutely wrong. Don't believe them. I asked my Japanese sister-in-law, and it's Sashiko. So let's just jump in with the interview. I'm here with Jessica Marquez, author, teacher, blogger, and mender. Hey, Jessica. Hey, how are you? Good. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to Yarn Stories. Thank you. So your book is called Make and Mend, Sashiko-inspired embroidery projects to customize and repair textiles and decorate your home. So um, it came out relatively recently, right? Like within the last year? Yeah, it came out August of uh, 2018. Awesome. So you're not you're not quite at a year yet of no it's being out. so weird that it's almost a year though because yeah. time just goes by too fast it really does <laughs> so sure. your book is a great introduction to sashiko style mending for people who aren't necessarily sewists so that you walk people through with materials they'd need um, you know all the basics rather than just like here's some patterns you know, go at it. So for the listeners who haven't heard of it, can you describe what Sashiko is and a bit of the history? For sure. Um, It's a really beautiful technique because of its simplicity. Um, Mm -hmm. You just use one stitch, you use the running stitch. And from that one stitch, you can create all these amazing patterns. Um, Patterns are usually geometric and interlocking, and Mm -hmm. they can be really simple, just dashed lines or they could be um really complex and um layered and beautiful and lots of intersections and yeah stuff like that. yeah in yeah some of the more complicated i think ones. even if people are like i don't know what sashiko is they've probably seen these patterns um, oh yeah on commercial um clothing and even like i see bowls and stuff with sashiko mm-hmm. patterns all over them and um so You've seen it, even if you're like, what the heck is that? And if you're um, curious, check out the show notes, because I'll have plenty of pictures. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and 
and it's a Japanese technique. It developed in rural Japan to repair clothing, to patch, quilt, insulate. And so the patterns really came second to the actual function of mm-hmm. patching or repairing. And then, then patterns got more complex. And now we see sashiko as mainly just a decorative element. But I really, really love um, tying it back to that historical historical uh, moment of necessity and need to repair especially like now when we're our consciousness is rising about fast fashion and so it's a really yeah cool way to um, bring this historical tried and true method back into our modern lives totally i i love that it's geometric uh generally you know geometric or repeating at the very least and yeah um and it's just like it adds a bit of I don't know. It ticks the box in the in the back of my brain that's like I want order, but also organic um, forms. So yeah, yeah. like it's both of those. It, for me, it's really satisfying to see the patterns like done because there's all the stitching, and then seeing this pattern, it does that exact thing that you were saying. Like when you said ticks the box, and we're like yes, 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 because when I teach classes and I'm like oh it's so cool it's a grid based thing and mm-hmm. you could like extend this as much as you want or yeah. scale up the pattern or scale it down you have all this room to play and people are like what <laughs> I'm so excited about it but it does it is something that I love about it is that like once it's drawn I could yeah. totally zone out I don't have yeah. to think about what stitch I'm gonna do or... yeah well like running stitch is like oh just so blissful <laughs> And especially because like it's visible mending. It's supposed to be like seen. So you're not trying to do running stitch as tiny as humanly possible. You're like, like you can do big old stitches, like quarter inch long stitches. It's just fun. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I really um, enjoy the big fat stitches because um, (laughs) it makes it go faster too. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So your book packs a lot into a dainty little package. It is small. It's like six by like eight or something um (laughs) you've got so much info in the materials but then transition into patterns for the for new items and then also a section for mending existing items and you also even include a little like collection of sashiko patterns like a stitch dictionary for knitters to inspire other projects so why was it important to you to cover so much um can i first say yeah it's funny that you mentioned the size because my most favorite Amazon review for the book is three stars and it says it's small. Oh, really? What the hell? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I thought it was so funny. Um, the sizing is was more about it being very compact and easy to take with you anywhere. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, very giftable. Well, and you can totally um, like tuck it into your like mending basket so it lives there with your mending. Yes, very portable. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, it's funny that you're saying there's so much in it because I was actually 100 pages over count and had to oh, edit shit. it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that was so not fun. Um, what did you end up taking out? I had all these like bonus things like a sashiko uh, cheat sheet, like all the little oh, rules nice. and little bonus projects that kind of spun off of the projects that were already in the book. So like, <laughs> so version two, second volume, I know, right? Yeah. I would love, I would love that. Um, <laughs> it 
there's there's so much. It was important to me because I feel like as as um, someone trying to like understand the technique, you'd have to have all this stuff, right? You need to yeah. understand like what kind of materials to use, what you can do with the with the patterns and to see all the patterns together. It was kind of like a really fun problem to figure out like how do I make this accessible yeah. and how do I make it clear? So it was really you know, about usability for yeah. for all levels of skill. Totally. Yeah. It's 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 working. It's Thank you. Yeah. My favorite I think is the is the like stitch dictionary in the back. Yeah, that was something that was like I really wanted you to see them together and I really wanted them to be colorful because <laughs> usually when you see sashi goat, I think it's like a rule you have to do blue and white because that's yeah. classic. That's it original. is the classic. Yeah. Well, because, you know, because you could dye like homespun clothing in in uh, rural Japan was dyed with indigo like because you could re-dye it every year. Yeah. There's such a rich tradition of indigo dyeing and it makes sense. Like it was like something that could hide stains mm-hmm. and um, it had even um, tra- like the way they dye indigo in their traditional method has um, like antiseptic mm-hmm. qualities to it. Yeah. And, and it was like a bug repellent. And so yeah. it, there's all these like historical and cultural reasons why blue and is the color, but I wanted to be like, Hey, <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you know, we're doing this for a completely different reason than rural ancient Japanese people were doing. So it doesn't need to be that. Part of the book, like the feel of the book, really, really wants to draw out the creativity of the person doing the mending. Um, I think that, you know, that it is really important that you showed like new projects and you showed mended projects and you like, you know, showed different colors and all that stuff. Like you've got to get people's creative juices working if they've never mended before. Yeah, that's something that's hard for me too because I feel like when you see something, you want to do exactly that. I don't. <laughs> I never I, do, I, I, which is why I, you know, am now in this business. <laughs> that's awesome to hear because a lot of times, like if I show something in a class or I'm teaching, everyone wants to make exactly what I just showed, mm-hmm. and it, part of me is like, no, 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 this is just a jumping-off point. You know, yeah. like that's really what I wanted. So yeah. it's. It's great to hear that. Um, yeah, there's there. This happens in the knitting world as well. Um, you know, basically, if you if you have a shop sample knit up in a like yarn store, you have to make sure that you have like three times as much of the color of the yarn that it's in as every other color of the yarn, because people will mm-hmm. come and be like, "I want that. I want to make that." You know? Yeah. No, I get not- it. You see it, and it's real to you. It's hard to imagine it sometimes another way. Whereas yeah. I'm like. I want to do all the all the colors and all right. the things. I want to like explore it until the wheels fall off. Yeah. 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 Like all the different permutations I could do. I want to like, you know, play with it forever. That's <laughs> even when I was drawing some of the patterns, a lot of them are traditional and like mm-hmm. classic patterns that are included, but the ones there's a few that are original and I must draw the drew them <laughs> draw them. True? <laughs> I don't know. I drew them like a million times. Like, what if it's three inches instead of two inches? And mm-hmm. what if it overlapped this much? And yeah. um, I got so into just playing with the patterns themselves, too. So there's just an insane amount of variation you could do. And it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's exciting and also like makes me exhausted. Like, because I don't, <laughs> I, don't I, just, I just don't have enough time. <laughs> 
I love that you've included the actual Japanese names for the <laughs> for the stitch patterns yeah. <laughs> when applicable. So thank you for that. I think, you know, it's really easy to whitewash, um, you know, and like kind of take ownership of things. Um, and it's really, I think it's really important to acknowledge the uh, history involved. Sure. Yeah. And the original people. Was that something you had to fight for or were they like, cool no, with it? that was important to me too, because I didn't want it to seem like, oh, hey, I just made this up. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Because it's not, especially for the classic patterns, they are traditional patterns. Sometimes they're, you know, beyond even Japanese culture, like some of the patterns are from Chinese yeah. um, culture and they're, they have these long, long, rich histories that are tied to um, these places. And I didn't, I didn't want to remove any of the history. I thought yeah. that was so important, especially because it's changed my view of the world. And so those little inclusions were really important to me, yeah. especially since I'm a, a Hispanic person living in the United States yeah. doing a Japanese art form. I, yeah. I, it felt like I didn't want to, to uh, erase any of that history. I really, really yeah. wanted to be respectful because it wasn't um, it wasn't just like this thing I made up. Yeah. It has a rich history that I needed to definitely pay homage to and to um, make sure every instance where I could reference it was included. Yeah. Makes sense. I tried. I, yeah. It's not it's not perfect, but um, and it was something is... I, was, I was really scared to even approach for a long time. When I was writing the book, I was scared, like, how would that be received, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm not Japanese. I thought yeah. maybe people would be uh, upset. Honestly, I was kind of scared. And so it was really important <laughs> to me. Um, not out of fear, but no, out of but respect. Respect, Yeah to to acknowledge the history involved and you know and like because some of some of these are you know originally chinese patterns but then they've been you know kind of adapted to be japanese because there's a history of colonialism between china and japan you know like that acknowledges that history and that power struggle and all of those things to include that history it's really naive to think that these were just like some patterns that popped up you know yeah there, there's so Nothing much symbolism and and meaning to to each of the patterns, but yeah. also like to the culture itself and how they're represented. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes they're tied to like, you know, this is for celebrating marriages. Like, yeah, it, there's there's they a, a traditional there's use a, that should be. Yeah, there's so much more than just like this is a pattern. Yes, yeah. totally. Awesome. Yeah. And that like going into the history of that, too. So interesting, like certain colors were for certain casts and you <laughs> only certain people could wear certain colors or certain prints. It's really, yeah. um, it's really rich and there's yeah. so much to it. And I yeah. was trying to, to write this little book and, and I felt so overwhelmed by what do I include? Yeah. What, that's probably why it was a hundred pages over count too. Cause that's, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's, you know, it's really easy to feel like this is important information, you know, in the context, but yeah, at some point, like nothing is ever going to be completely inclusive because it can't be, you know, it just can't. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's funny. Like sometimes I'll do 
something and I'll really try to hit that point hard. And someone's like, I don't care. Let's just get to the making or, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all who your audience is too. Cause some people yeah. are really interested in that history. And there's so many, like, um, I'm so glad that we live in a digital age where we could like oh, Google right. it or yeah. Where we can go on the, the dive and look up the history. Yeah. 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 Instead of having to have been, you know, like a scholar in a, you know, in Chinese history from like, you know, who spent like 10 years <laughs> studying yeah, and still doesn't to dig up like yeah. stuff in the library where like, what are libraries now? <laughs> yeah. Well, like interlibrary loan and, you know, like trying to get stuff in another language because that's the only thing that the history is written in. And like, it yeah, just... that was, that was actually a problem I had too, is because there's a few books on Sashiko and I really wanted to, um, to, get them all but a lot of times there I had really limited resources too yeah. but there's all there's like really great um I wish I remembered it maybe I'll give it to you for the show notes but yeah, um right. one of the books that I was reading about just Japanese patterns and textile history was a museum book Ooh. I'll try to find it for you that sounds like um, I want that book yeah <laughs> and that that was so interesting to me I loved I loved that that sounds great well, that actually brings us well to the next question. Do you have a favorite of the Sashiko patterns? I always say, oh, that's my favorite or that's my favorite. It's probably what I've just stitched because yeah, I'm so fair. proud to have just done that one. And then that looks so gorgeous to me. There's like <laughs> little endorphins that go off in my brain like, you made it. <laughs> yes, that yeah. accomplishment. I think we all like live off of that accomplishment feeling. For sure. Yeah. That's why we all have like 20 projects going on at once. Mm-hmm. Always. Uh, I think my favorite is Asanala, the um, hemp leaf, because yes. I am obsessed with hexagons. Mm. I think that hexagons are the perfect shape, and it's because it's hexagonally based. It just makes me very happy. There, There's something really beautiful about that pattern just in general. Like I see it so much on um, clothing and mm-hmm. um, shoes and yeah it just does something. There's something about that pattern. It's complexity and how it interlocks. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. It's because hexagons are magic. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a hexagonal storm on the poles of Saturn. That's amazing. I've never heard that. Yeah. Like the pictures are amazing. I will definitely put them in the show notes, but like that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely a hexagon nerd. Like I will, anything that's How is hexagon that even, and I, I don't know that's why I'm like they're magic <laughs> I'm like still there at the, at the imagining how a hexagon, hexagonal storm forms like I don't know yeah. it's crazy yeah. like there's little weird yeah. vortexes in the corners I it's crazy but um yeah like I have a I have a hexagon tattoo over my heart um oh. I have I have a very geometric sleeve tattoo that has a bunch of hexagons in it that makes me really happy um, yeah. yeah, it's just, I love them. If there's something that is hexagonal shaped, I will be very tempted to buy it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a surefire way to get me to buy stuff is make it in hexagon shape. That's so interesting. You know, like how pleasing forms are mm. to people. Like that's your form. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. I find that very interesting. Uh, and I have an obsessive nature, so, you know, it's <laughs> not very far off. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> so how did you come to mending? What's your personal history with it? 
I um I kind of came to it in an interesting way because I've been doing textile based work for a long time. Mm-hmm. Make and Mend is actually my second book. I wrote Stitched Gifts in 2012, and that was like a really classic embroidery book. And I was really interested in looking at different ways embroidery had been used in different cultures and um, different styles. Yeah. And I would um, spend a lot of time looking at all these different variations. And I liked Sashiko. It was mm-hmm. nice. But I hadn't really thought about it in terms of like mending because I only saw yeah. it in this contemporary view. Um, and very thrift-minded. I love not accumulating stuff because in mm-hmm. my past, I'm such a hoarder. Like if you looked at my <laughs> house, there's not, a free, there's not a free space on my wall. But like I've really been trying to pare down and minimalize and very focused on like minimizing my environmental impact. Mm -hmm. And um, my boyfriend has a lot of um, denim. He's like a denim head. So he would, he would ask me to mend his jeans. And I was like, well, you know, I could show you how to, you know, zigzag stitch on the sewing machine, you know? Yeah. And then he was like, why don't you do a sashiko? And I was like, Oh, I started looking at vintage Sashiko and um, and Boro pieces, which are like um, like patchwork, the, like layer yeah, upon but layer. like to the extreme. Yeah, like they they weren't um, like patchwork in the sense where we think of patchwork. Yeah, like, not like oh, this, our quilting or hand quilting. Nice here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was very much like a need based thing, but um, it's like a crazy quilt that's all in den- all in indigo. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. The translation is ragged, so that gives you yeah. like an idea, like of the kind of things how they look. They're actually, I think they're pretty, gloriously beautiful. They're insanely beautiful, but it's funny because we look at it through contemporary eyes, yeah. where it's like so gorgeous. Whereas the person who had it was in need. It was like yeah. a resourceful it was thing. A shameful and, thing. I just want to interject for a second about boro. The term is derived from Japanese boro-boro, meaning something tattered or repaired. As Jessica said, boro is a patchwork technique with these indigo dyed clothing. Boro stitching uses sashiko techniques to give added durability to the patch. One thing that we in our fast fashion world are not aware of is that for centuries clothing has been a stand-in for money. Not only did your clothing show whether you had money or not, and there were sumptuary laws that determined what you could and couldn't wear based on your income, but clothing was used like money. People left their clothing to relatives in their wills, and clothing was remade to fit the new wearer. Karl Marx, the great socialist philosopher, used to pawn his and his family's clothing to pay their bills and then redeem it when they had their money again. In fact, he was doing research for his most well-known work, Capital, and had acquired a ticket to use the British Museum's reading room, but couldn't go because his coat was still pawned. And they wouldn't let him in without a coat. He looked like a ruffian. Anyhow, back to Boro. A garment was passed through people and patched when it needed patching, to the point where it almost becomes more patched than garment. 
Patches would be made with whatever happened to be on hand and whatever scrap fit the mend. So as the garment passed through generations, it took on a little bit of the history of each person who wore it and each person who mended it. Looking deeply at a borrow piece is like touching the lives of countless people who were connected by a single garment. The people who spun, wove, and dyed the original piece. The people who made the fabric of each subsequent patch. And the garments that those patches originally came from, and on and on and on. Definitely. It wasn't like, oftentimes you don't see Sashiko classified as an art form in Japan because it was a poor person's work, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that context is really interesting. But I was looking at these um, Boro pieces and vintage Sashiko and all these little parts of my interests were like coming, buttoning up, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I could use embroidery and I could um, prolong the life of my clothes and I could start talking about environmentalism with textiles and mm-hmm. I can explore this cultural history of tick, embroidery. Tick, tick, all the way down the list. Yeah, it was yeah. really, it, it wasn't like a conscious thing where I was like, oh, now I'm going to do this, you yeah. know? It organically uh, happened. Yeah, and it really it really felt like, oh my gosh, this, this speaks so much to so many of my interests and I really want to like throw myself into it. So um, I started just by like, Um, learning as much as I can and mending some of his clothes and my stuff. And that's awesome. Yeah. Um, So did you, so you were starting with like, with really basic Sashiko or like, because you already had, you had an understanding of what it was. Did you just dive right into like crazy shit, crazy complicated shit? (laughs) No, no, really, really basic stuff. Like (laughs) my first pieces were just like small men's, um, some that like busted out because I didn't understand like how much extra material I needed on the edges mm-hmm. of my patches or yeah. that I didn't understand the nature of like mending a three-dimensional garment that needs to have room to flex and yeah, move that's fair. body. Um, so it was like a lot of trial and error and doing things a couple times mending my men's because they were <laughs> very good. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one thing that like I think new menders, new people to mending like are going to miss is that you like the canvas of what you should be mending is substantially larger than you think it should be. For sure. Yeah. That like, was like one of my big mistakes is like, oh, the the hole is an inch, so I'll make an inch patch like yeah. no <laughs> <laughs> well and that's you know because mending needs to happen that way to maintain the integrity of the fabric this is why i think visible mending is amazing you know because like it's it's gonna it's gonna be there like it's gotta be there if you're gonna mend the piece so why not make it an integral beautiful part of the piece and even if it's ugly it's like i love i love the part of visible mending that's like I don't really give a fuck. Yeah, this is, right. Yeah, this is my clothes and I'm going to like patch it this way and I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't have to look like everything else. Yeah. I like, I like reclaiming it and making it however you want it to look. Yeah. Well, I definitely consider my, my mended commercial pieces as part of my handmade wardrobe. Like, because they have become my own. I have made them my own. The life of their, their usable life ended and then I reclaimed them with part of myself I really like that I I was reading about the woman and forgive me I can't I don't know her name who started the me made may oh yes um sozo blog I think or yeah I know who you're talking about 
I always felt like I couldn't participate because my clothing wasn't all handmade. Mm-hmm. I have some pieces, but you know, I would see these people and they'd be like, I just made this dress or I made this. And you know, they were like saying like how sometimes stressed they were because they hadn't finished this top and they wanted to s- s- share it for um, this me made campaign. And mm-hmm. I was read about why she started it. And it was really about slowing down yeah. and whether it's mended or made, it was about appreciating your clothes. And I was like, why aren't I doing this? I yeah. felt like I wasn't allowed to, but I love like what you just said. I have so many clothes that I'm so proud of that I've mended the hem and it's just a little piece, yeah. but I do feel more committed to that garment now. Yeah, for sure. There's, um, you know, I have a bunch of ready to wear pieces that like, like a favorite shirt that I've blown out the elbows a couple of times. And like, I tried, you know, just stitching them closed and I ended up crocheting patches to put on there out of silk. They're adorable. Oh, cool. They're also <laughs> headstones. Um, you know, like there's, yeah. So like I have, I have an extensive handmade wardrobe because I've been trying to like get rid of commercially made pieces and, you know, replace them with handmade as they wear out or, you know, or like I stop wearing them and I'm trying to like evolve my wardrobe into being, being very much an artistic expression of myself. But yeah, I love that. But like, you know, those mended pieces are just as much part of me made wardrobe as anything that I sewed myself from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, like one of the things I'm working on too. Like I love, um, how you said it because sometimes I would wake up and be like ah fuck clothes like I don't <laughs> right, I don't, sometimes. <laughs> I don't really like clothes a lot of the time they're just uh, they make me feel weird and sweaty <laughs> <laughs> nudists forever if I could live in um, like cotton underwear and a tank top right oh I tank would, tops man but I live in New York City. I would never get on the subway like that. No, you're, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's going to end badly. Yeah. So, but like, <laughs> I, I do want to feel when I put on my clothes empowered and yeah. proud of what I'm wearing um, and not embarrassed if someone sees me who I know in public. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's also just a, a really joyful thing in your days, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, like, it's, you know, Mew Made May was hard because, like, there's a bunch of, like, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't dress just with whatever I felt like I wanted to wear that day. You know, it had, like, I was trying to, like, focus on the Mew Maids rather than, like, including the ready-to-wear and stuff like that. Because there's still some ready-to-wear pieces that I absolutely love um, mm-hmm. and wear all the time. Uh, but, yeah, that was, you know, it gets hard every day to be, like, like having any restriction on what I can and can't wear. Yeah. So part of it's yeah. part of it's that I have a, a chronic illness. So, you know, like my day, my comfort level every day is going to be different and my pain level every day is different. And so like I choose my clothing to suit that. But yeah. So, you know, hard. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it's I do in general find my wardrobe joyful and choosing clothing to be joyful. Yeah. And I I think that's how it should be yeah that's fair it shouldn't it shouldn't i hated the way i was thinking about my clothes yeah 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 interesting and now and now being more thoughtful about it it's really changed my experience in getting dressed in the morning or yeah 
If you're not familiar with it, Me Made May was started by Zoe Edwards of Sozo Blog back in 2010 as a way to encourage people to make their own clothes and develop a better relationship with their handmade or refashioned wardrobes. I participated and met all of my goals this year. My specific goals were to wear Me Made at least 29 out of the 31 days, to make and wear my first pair of shoes, and to determine what I'm missing from my wardrobe. If you want to see all of my Me Made May posts, I've linked the Instagram story roundup in the show notes. There's also a really great episode of the Love to Sew podcast that I'll link in the show notes where they talk to Zoe Edwards about Me Made May. So there's a double whammy when it comes to the fight to make our fashion sustainable because clothing is now made so cheaply that it hardly seems reasonable to mend it. But it's also made to be disposable, which makes it harder to patch and keep because it's just like it falls apart. So um, for people who don't sew, what would you suggest as strategies to build a better slow fashion wardrobe? I totally feel this. I totally get it. And for a long time, I was that person I would buy cheap clothing because I needed mm-hmm. a new top or a yeah, new outfit like, for an event old navy is so damn tempting you know yeah like you know when everything's super cheap and you're like $20 jeans yeah <laughs> it's it's bizarre to me to to think about who I am talking to you right now and who I was like five years ago who like I went shopping a lot yeah and now I never go shopping yeah. like if I am going shopping, I'm going thrift store shopping or I'm trying to think about like maybe buying from like a local uh, or indie biz mm-hmm. that I want to support. Um, I sometimes stroll through anthropology and just like eyeball things and be like, oh, okay, that's an interesting silhouette. I could totally make something like that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong to go no. shopping. I'm not saying you shouldn't. No, I no. Just, I think we're, we're we're so pressured to do it. Yeah. There's so much pressure to to consume and yeah. whether it's clothing or even cleaning supplies. Like yeah. there's just so much pressure to like you need this. Well, you like, want this. This is a t- totally random tangent that might get cut out, but like the Amazon like reorder buttons I'm like, no, you should think about it. Like, it should be a harder decision for you to reorder <laughs> something in a plastic bottle. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I truly, truly believe convenience culture is like killing us. It's like a chokehold on um, the planet right now because yeah. it's it just makes so much waste. And uh, I get really bummed out when I think about it. All this stuff, like it should be like, we can do it. But I'm like, we're we're dying. Mm-hmm. We're just filling up our, our lives with all this like plastic and yeah. t- toxic uh, I get very um I'm a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I've um p- but it's the focus of this podcast has very much been like that I'm giving you information what you do with it is your own goddamn business, you know? Like um there's there's not you know, I I don't like I'm trying to live a less plasticky lifestyle, but like I still would not begrudge the pieces of plastic that are in my dad's pacemaker, you know, like that's, yeah. there's, I, I, a plastic free life is not going to happen because there are things that plastics are infinitely better for. But we could make better choice. But we yes. could reduce, yes, but we could absolutely reduce our plastic use. Like we don't need to put plastic wrap on top of something or put everything in Ziploc bags or, you know, like. We could have reusable silicone Ziploc bags. They exist. 
just invest in them. (laughs) Like, yeah, there's so many little swaps that are interesting to me. Like, uh, I bought a pen, a fountain pen that has, and I was like, Oh shit, I never need another pen. This is so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Except that you then get into the addiction of fountain pens and then you buy like a million of them. I'm in in that space. The woman at the shop was like, this is a, this is a basic one, but Look at all these different ones. I was like, well, if I buy this one, why would I need those? She's like, ha ha. <laughs> she's, like, <laughs> she's just like, just wait, you know, because uh-huh. you're going to get into different inks and certain, you can't write with certain things on with this pen. And, you know, you're going to want a different a feel when you're holding it. It's just really interesting. That's but really like, funny. you can make so many swaps, like your dental oh, yeah. floss. Yeah, your this is what I'm Toilet paper. About, your, there's, it's just insane. Like I've, we stopped buying commercial um, cleaners and started making our own. It's like, mm-hmm. holy shit, that's so cool. I mean, yeah, it's well, so like, cool. Like, you know, a bottle of ammonia is like seventy-eight cents at Target or something. You know, like it's or white vinegar and yeah, some vinegar. essential oils. And yeah. Like, have you made citrus vinegar? Just like take all of your citrus rinds during the winter and like just keep putting them into a jar with vinegar. Ah, uh, no. It's so good. It smells beautiful and and it like, you know, it has the extra like um, citrus oils to help cut through some stuff. It's great. That's awesome. Yeah. In fact, I have some limes that I can do that with right now. Very cool. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> so I should answer sides. your question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we could just, you know, keep chatting. It'll be fun. No. I have like certain things that I do now when I'm when I'm thinking about clothes and buying clothes. I used to buy stuff because it kind of fit me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, no, 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 no. Right. Got got to fit me right. Yes. Or else I'm not going to wear it. It's just going to sit there. I'm not going to take the time to like take in the sides or whatever. Like yeah. it's just got to fit me if I'm buying it yeah. or it's got to be a reasonable thing that I could actually fix. Like, yeah. I'm not going to buy two big pants and bring them in, you know? Yeah. I look for better quality materials now. Mm-hmm. So I try to avoid synthetics. I Always. try to Because they just buy. make you sweaty and stinky and gross. Yeah. And I'm already, like, I'm, I, I've i mentioned this before, like, clothes make me feel so, like, claustrophobic and sweaty. Yeah. So I like. Something breezy like, and, yeah, yes. breathable is linens, important. Linens are awesome. Oh, I love linens. Cotton's nice. Um, I also would really recommend um, Elizabeth Klein's book, Overdressed, because that really kind of flipped the script on how I think about clothes. Yeah. um, It kind of put my consumer habits in context with, like, the greater uh, picture of what's happening. Yeah, the uh, impact of those little choices. Yeah, and also, like, it was really easy for me as a vegan to think about like the production of my food, like how are the animals treated? How are the workers treated? What conditions were both of those um, people in? Like I thought about that, but I never, I don't think I, not to say I never thought about it, but I don't think I thought about it quite as much. Or fully understood it. Yeah. Yeah. And so putting that into perspective too, is like, yes, I want to, to be not in control, but to have a more mindful part of this process yeah. well, I beyond, think, oh, this is cheap. Yeah. And it kind of, <laughs> yeah, 
The book Jessica is talking about is Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion by Elizabeth L. Klein. It's a deep dive into the impacts made by our cultural obsession with fast fashion through a lens of society, environment, and economics. It's really a great book. I've put an affiliate link in the show notes if you'd like to throw a portion of the purchase cost my way for the recommendation. I think the mindfulness is the important thing. Like whether you whether you buy the cheap old navy top or not, understanding, you know, and being mindful that like, you know, this is this was made by a 12-year-old girl in Indonesia who, you know, who like is getting paid pennies a day. You know, and like and basically is enslaved to the company that she sews for, you know, like understanding that and being mindful of that. Like if you still need the, you know, $12 top because you're because like you have to wear, you know, you have to have a shirt for work and you don't make enough to afford anything else. Like that's fine. That's still, you know, a valid choice. But it's a choice that you should be mindful while you're making. Yeah. Definitely. I also wanted to get the point across that even if you buy that $12 top, maybe you can only buy what you need and not take advantage of the buy two, get the third free sale. Maybe you can use the top for longer than it was intended to be used. Maybe you can fix the hem when it starts unraveling instead of throwing it away. It's not a black and white, good, bad dichotomy. It's all a series of choices that will leave the world better or not. And in the sake of full disclosure, I'm still using entirely too many plastic Ziploc bags because they're just so damn easy. But I'm testing out reusable non-plastic options to find out what can realistically fit into my life. That's where I land on it. Like, I fully understand that there are more considerations, you know, than like, and being able to talk about sustainability and slow fashion and all those things is a privilege that we have in a first world country. You know, like it's, you know, it's white people problems for the most part, but you know, it's, it's, it's just, because we're in the first world yes. that those problems are happening, though, yeah. because we demand cheaper, faster, yep. more. Yep. And understanding how all of those those pressures and those power struggles and, you know, and various people intersect with it. I think, you know, being mindful of that and understanding that can can make just you know, make this slight tipping difference. You know, maybe you buy less. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. you buy less fast fashion. That's still a, that's still a choice towards sustainability. And also trying like little things like not that aren't as convenient, but help prolong the life. Mm-hmm. Like I've stopped drying my clothes. Yeah. It's yeah. a bitch because they're heavy <laughs> and I have to carry them from the laundromat to my house, which is a few blocks away and I'm upstairs. But there's yeah. like these little things, these little choices that could also be so useful and yeah. create a greater um, impact. So like, yeah, if you are that person who needs to buy that top, well, how about, you know, trying to take care of it? Yeah. And, and, and I, I had to kind of switch my mind too. like, you know, I would buy all these clothes from the thrift store. Yeah. I would, I, I love that feeling of finding something. I love the, but then I'd be thing. like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's like, you know, trying to find something, great you know like that hidden treasure but then i'd I'd be like well maybe i wouldn't wear half of it and then i would be i wouldn't think about my responsibility in that like other half of those clothes yeah i would just be like well i'll donate them again not realizing that you know that's 
not really um, solving the problem. It's just yeah. making it disappear for you. Yeah. You know? So some like strategies of like choosing, choosing one over, you know, choosing something over the other, choosing something better quality materials over something new, choosing something thrifted, you know, I mean, choosing something thrifted over something new, choosing something better quality over something cheaper. Um, yeah. Like, well, the thing is the tiny, the tiny choices add up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really believe they do because they kind of catapult you into that thinking like, oh, if I could swap this, can I swap that? Yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's really how this has been happening for me because I'll be like, oh, what about, I don't know, the, the dental floss thing yeah. comes to mind, you know? And then I think about, oh, my deodorant, like maybe I don't need a kind of, um, antiperspirant. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm allergic to the aluminum. <laughs> And it's not great for you, but it's I mean, really bad. <laughs> but it's interesting to see, like, sometimes I think we're such like convenience babies. Like, yeah. uh, honestly, a few years ago, I would have never been having this conversation with you. Cause I was like, I go to the store, I buy all my crap, you know? Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, I can make like 90% of the stuff that I was buying before Yeah. or reuse some of the other stuff. And it's just, it's just really interesting. Like how we're marketed to yeah and really honestly like make and mend and researching sashiko has been this like huge catapult for me changing all these little things in my life that i was already interested in and thinking about but it was really like oh imagining making my own fabric from scratch and and how resourceful people were and how limited they were in terms of like access to materials and and um really shifted my thinking. Yeah. Here we went on a bit of a tangent that I had to cut for time about what is considered art, what is craft, and how important it is to acknowledge folk art as art, including punk rock flag patches and patchwork quilts. Sashiko definitely fits in this vein. I'll be putting this extra cutout bit into the Patreon. If you would like to join the Patreon at any level, you'll have access to that. So let's jump back in. We're comparing textile arts to fine arts here part of it I think is also a reclamation of women's work you know things that have been traditionally women's work were like home arts or whatever and they didn't you know they weren't necessarily recognized as as daily you know useful art for sure and textile arts have always been a little dogged you know yeah. because they're not precious metals or right. you know fine art painting it's this textile that we wear every day it's yeah. this you like utilitarian thing, you know, it's, it's kind of bizarre to me. You know, when Frank Lloyd Wright designs a woven fabric for cushions in a house that he designed, then it's art. But we don't talk about the woman who executed that weaving, Mm. you know, there's, there's a lot of double standards still, but we're working on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, all those things are very interesting to me, like to talk about like, the people who are actually doing the thing. Yeah. The crafts people. Like those, these traditional, these traditional crafts. Yeah. 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 There's, we had a really interesting conversation in the last episode. No, not last episode, the one before, um, kind of exploring the difference between art and craft and where that line is drawn. Because I don't think it's a line. I think it's a permeable border. Yeah. But when yeah. I did, I did photography because that's my background. That was art. Mm-hmm. Capital A. Yeah, and when when I did started doing textile work, that was like 
real lowercase, maybe not art, yeah. maybe 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 you're crafty. Mm-hmm. And that was always like a point of kind of shame to me because yeah. I was thinking like, am I not? Am I not an artist? And then I realized, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I make every day. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't think it's a line. I don't think it's a a solid, you know, like division between what's art and what's craft. I think art is in the eye of the beholder. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's about intention as well. Um, if you, you know, if you intended it to be beautiful as well as functional, and you made it that way, then I think it's art. If it has if it has an extra intention of being beautiful or making or having a purpose, like making you think or making, you know, making um, evoke trying to evoke a feeling, then I would mm-hmm. say it's art. It's funny because usually when you say like something that's functional, that wouldn't be art. And I love oh, but they're I totally love it when it. I love it when it is. I yeah. love it when it is. Because, you know, I when I think of functional utilitarian objects, you know, those are not things that are classically defined as art objects. But I think some, if something's been, you know, well-designed and like, like, look at, you know, arts and crafts movement, like tables, they're super functional, but they're gloriously beautiful as well. For sure. I'm thinking of like capital A art in painting yeah, on a yeah, wall, yeah. you know, just yeah, like... Yeah. Like a painting just hanging on there. the wall. Yeah. It just sits there. But I, but like quilts, functional things. Yeah. Oftentimes quilts, like art quilts aren't used at all, but. <laughs> yeah. They should be. I, yeah. No, that, that's the thing to me. Like, I love it when it can be something that's useful, that's yeah. beautiful, that's functional, that, you know. Yeah. Um, I think it makes it doubly art. Yeah. Like a cup, like a cup you hold in your hand and it's mm-hmm. like an and amazing, beautiful perfect. cup. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And it just fits perfectly in your hand. Or like when the, when the, uh, I'm really picky about the handles on my mugs. Like when the <laughs> handle like <laughs> makes you feel like the mug is perfectly balanced and you've got all the right fingers fitting in it, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at like my boyfriend's collection of ceramics and a lot of them to me are like pretty ugly. <laughs> 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 because he really digs it when it's like these glazes that aren't, perfect and mm, yeah they're on they're like really wabi-sabi and yeah. wabi-sabi what does this mean wabi-sabi is a worldview based on buddhist teachings that focuses on acceptance of transience and imperfection of all things so when it's applied as an aesthetic it's usually imperfection roughness asymmetry and other things that would be considered quote-unquote flaws in a perfect world they're handmade they're hand-formed to me i'm like okay and to him it's like so gorgeous yeah they're ticking the Um, boxes in his brain yeah for sure yeah and i but i can appreciate them i'm looking at them right now and be like i love that they're in my house and he uses them and that makes me happy yeah yeah i like to contribute to the life cycle of things (laughs) i feel like like i'm a steward for them for a little while instead of owning them for sure and stuff and things are fun (laughs) you know yeah it's such a pleasure to like collect beautiful objects and appreciate them and yeah i i did say i was a little bit of a hoarder so fine (laughs) (laughs) most of my most of my purchases over the last few years have shifted to tools to make all the things that i want to make you know rather than materials oh god seriously (laughs) yeah so instead of buying things i'm buying tools to make the things like i'm learning to make shoes i'm doing all sorts of insane things but so fun um, yeah 
So yeah, like, you know, but making that choice to order the tool that I can then use to make this a million times rather than ordering the thing, you know. Yeah, it makes you appreciate the thing, though. It really does. Because because you understand exactly what work went into it. Yeah, especially for shoes like that. Like who makes shoes? I'm sure a lot of people are like, hey, I make shoes. (laughs) There's there's a growing portion of people that are learning to make shoes. But But um, it's it's one of those still not that much that you buy and you're like, man, I had to spend a hundred bucks on these. Like, yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure just the amount of time alone is oh, for much sure. more than that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I bought, a- uh, you know, I made a pair of sandals that like, you know, if you bought them at Target would have been like 15 bucks. And I'm like, I definitely put more than 15 bucks worth of work into these. Yeah. It totally makes you wonder like, how in the hell are they getting these price points? Like, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I always think that like, if you made anything, like if you made if you if you didn't sew and you sewed one top, you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not so easy. It takes a lot of time. Materials cost a lot too, and ha- learning the knowledge to use a sewing machine or yeah. you know form a shoe or make your own jam yeah or grow your own vegetables like this shit is worth the cost because someone's knowledge and efforts and energies and mm-hmm. all that really makes you appreciate it i agree so there's a question that i ask everyone in season two if you could be reincarnated as any animal what animal would you be my first inclination is like some bug that's going to die really quick so that (laughs) i can be reincarnated back into a human (laughs) (laughs) um but <laughs> but what would you have to do to get reincarnated as a bug? Like, that's lower on the reincarnation totem pole, you know? I'm like, it must have been a really shitty person. Um. <laughs> bugs are kind of cool. I really like no, bugs. No, I like though. bugs. I think they're so cool. Um, unless you're like a snail or something, you have to be like, I think snails are cool too, but I just think it's probably touching everything with your like wet belly would feel. Yeah. Really weird. I I think it would be super cool to fly. So I'm going to say some bird. Okay. Um, <laughs> just, I want to put up with flying. Any Sounds category cool. of bird. <laughs> um, I think crows are badass. They I are. Really they're love, super smart. Yeah, they're really they're really cool. I could like just sit and watch crows. They're really beautiful and smart and clever birds mm-hmm. we also have um these they're they're not a native species here in new york the starlings oh they're, yeah um, the european starlings they're so beautiful though yeah, they they're, they're the black, shiny iridescent iridescent and they're super funny i love i walk my dog like three times a day and the starlings are always out they got like a chicken bone or yeah. like <laughs> they're, yeah, they're resourceful little fuckers. They're they all are, over the place. They're here too. Yeah. Okay. They're um, yeah, they're everywhere. I found one once injured, and I was just turning him over in my hand, just like, "Wow, you're so beautiful." Yeah. Ugh. I I I didn't keep him. I took him to a sanctuary. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's that's a good plan. Birds are complicated ever- and tiny. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and he's always like, "My wings hurt." Um. <laughs> He couldn't fly. I just snatched him up. But turning him over my hand, he's freckled and like got yeah. blue and pink and gold. I was, so yeah, they're magic. 
They're pretty, pretty Holy. magical birds. I love them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for talking to me. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks for um, this really <laughs> wandering, Sorry. meandering conversation. I <laughs> That's Sorry cool. I was a bummer. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, I I like organic conversations. Interviews by themselves are boring. If you knew exactly where they were going, you know, then I know. Why would you listen? You know, and a lot of times it's like no one wants to hear just like tell me about your book. Okay, done. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on Instagram. I'm at miniature rhino and my online shop is miniaturerhino.com. And my Etsy shop is Miniature Rhino. <laughs> Everything How did you come to Miniature Rhino? Miniature Rhino. So I opened shop in 2008, and mm-hmm. I felt like everything has been taken. Oh, any, yeah. Any name, any username. And um, I had this moniker for the longest time based on one of my young cousin's imaginary friends, Dr. Yeah. Rhino. Okay. Um she was three at the time and had imaginary friend a doctor, named doctor imaginary friend interesting yeah he was okay. a dentist yeah so okay. you know um <laughs> she eventually got tired of him and went to mr penguin but um it's downgrading from I, doctor i know i know <laughs> she she was really upset with him when she went to the actual dentist and had cavities so oh <laughs> yeah so <laughs> your imaginary friend can't be a dentist anymore she had such a rich imagination that it really like <laughs> tickled me and um yeah. like she's only three yeah she's a goofy little three-year-old so like her little self juxtaposed with like this giant idea of a rhino and a lab coat yeah I, um, that's came up awesome with rhino and i've had it for so long that that's just yeah, that it's just <laughs> yeah it's stuck and, and people are always curious. So I like that. But a lot of times, like even me, sometimes I spell miniature wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like not the smartest business name, but yeah. people seem to be tickled by the story and yeah. curious about it. I do wish it was just Jessica Marquez. But if you Google my name, Jessica Marquez, all it my shit up. will pop up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Okay. Yeah. So that's where people can find you. Thank you. And hopefully, you know, there'll be a second volume forthcoming. <laughs> Because I would like another one. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome here. Give me, give me like four years. I know, and- right? You need a recovery period after a book. Oh, it just, and it just takes so long when you're doing it, it too. Like, it's funny. Like, I think this started into like 2015, and then the writing, and then the wait for it to come out. You're like, oh, when God. is this happening? I could have had like yeah. two babies by now. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> well, especially with traditional publishing. So the turnaround is a little faster when you're self-publishing because, like, you know, as soon as you're done with your edit, you're like, sweet. You know, you have some yeah. friends look over it or hire an editor or something. But then, like, then it goes to print. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's great. That that wait is probably the 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 least of it though it's all the editing that drives me crazy yeah yeah yep so much work cool thank you oh thank you so fun to talk to you i just want to leave you with some numbers on the economics of mending If you can take a garment that was supposed to be usable for one year and extend its life to two years, you can reduce emissions over those years by 24%. 
It takes 2,700 liters of water to make one cotton t-shirt. So repairing your clothing not only makes it more your own and gives you the use of a loved item for longer, but it makes an impact on the earth and the environment. As the inimitable Vivian Westwood said, buy less, choose well, make it last. If you'd like to purchase Make and Mend, check out your locally owned bookstore, or if you want to buy it online, I've got a link in the show notes that will give me a little portion of the book sale. If you'd like to get your hands on some fantastic Sashiko supplies for mending or decorative embroidery, I would recommend you check out sashi.co. So that's S-A-S-H-I dot C-O. They're on Instagram as sashi.co. They have sashi.co that you can read in English, but their storefront is upcycledstitches.com slash store. They also sell handmade Sashiko finished pieces if you're not into doing it yourself, but would like to support Japanese artisans keeping this craft alive. Thank you for joining me for this second season of Yarn Stories. I'm going to take a bit of time off and then start in earnest on planning the third season. If you have any ideas for the third season or people you'd like to hear about, I'd love to hear them. Just send me a note at miriam at yarnstoriespodcast.com. You can follow me in all my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as MimKnits. Thank you so much to the patrons, Claudia, Lee, Barb, Beta, Barbara, Beth, Carly, Danelle, Erica, Petra, PK, Rebecca, Ricky, Sharon, Steffi, Susan, and Turret. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. And if you want between seasons bonus content, you should definitely join that Patreon. That's where all of that goes. Subscriptions start at $1 a month. It would mean the world to me if you would go and rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or Stitcher, or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends via social media or word of mouth. I would love to have the subscription numbers be up over the summer and be able to possibly get some sponsorships. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I will return in the fall with a brand new season full of fiber, making, and probably lots of laughing. It's how I roll. Bye, friends. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet?